For those of you who are visiting or joining us uh, for the first time today, we just started a new sermon series on the Ten Commandments last week, and we had the introduction, and today we're going to look at the first commandment, so please give your attention to the reading of God's Word. This is a reading from the book of Exodus, chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father, we ask that uh, this morning you would send your spirit here so that these words that you give us would become words of life to us, words of hope, words of encouragement, words that confront us but most of all, words that help us to see the beauty of all that you've done for us through your Son so that we would go out and live in obedience and faithfulness to you. And we ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. Um, I came across a story this week of a family who was doing a devotional, a family devotional with their children. And they opened their Bible, and the section they got to was about the giving of the law to Moses. So before reading the passage... The mom asked the children, okay, how many commandments did God give to Moses? And the five-year-old shouted out, too many. (laughs) Too many. Um, Maybe we share those sentiments as we come to the Ten Commandments because we talked about it's hard for us to actually remember all ten. But maybe we feel like ten. It just feels like a lot of rules and laws. But... I don't know what it feels like to you, but, you know, when I talk to people about God's law or the scriptures, oftentimes people think about it as, well, I actually don't give a lot of thought to them. They're kind of a nice ideal, but I believe in being authentic to who I am. You know, what's important is I do what feels right to me as long as I don't hurt other people. Um, That's one way people talk about this. Other people say, I don't really give a whole lot of thought to it because I think it's generally good for society to uphold certain things like this, but it feels impossible to live up to, so I never really give much thought to it again. Others who are perhaps used to being in the church or growing up around the Bible will talk about, you know, I love all the good stuff about being a Christian, meaning forgiveness. I love how Jesus forgives and loves. Then there's the not-so-fun part about obeying. Because it feels like I have to do. And then there are also some of you who feel like, you know, when I think about the law and about the Ten Commandments, it reminds me I don't want to disappoint God. I don't want him to be disappointed with me. I disappoint enough people already. So obeying is what I do to get God to approve of me. Or at least I try. See? And I say all this because I think we all have a complicated relationship with the Ten Commandments. But here's why it is so important for us to hear God tell us about his law. Because he doesn't give us these commandments to flex his power over us. He doesn't do this to restrict our freedom, to make our lives burdensome, but to actually lead us to experience life to the fullest. That, that's what the Bible actually says about the Ten Commandments. 
You know, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, there's the second giving of the Ten Commandments. And at the end of it, this is what God says, which I love. He says in verse 29, Oh, that they had such a heart as this always. And he's talking about his people. To fear me and keep all my commandments that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. And I want you to hear that last part. You know why he's saying he wants them to obey these words? That it might go well with them and their descendants forever. This is a recurring phrase in the book of Deuteronomy. That it might go well with you. See, this is the orientation God comes at with his commandments. He says, hey, remember you were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. He's saying, I rescued you. And I'm not just one of the many gods of Egypt here. I'm not like that, or I'm not the God who set the world in motion, but is detached and impersonal. But he says at the outset in verse 1, what does he say? I am the Lord your God, a God who is for you, a God who loves you, a God who says, I'm your savior, not your taskmaster. And the motivation for obeying is trust, gratitude, springing from all that he's done for us. So before we even look at the commandment itself, we have to ask, do we understand that? You know, this is why we spent a whole first sermon on that whole point that David looked at pretty thoroughly last week, but I think it's important we frame it this way as we look at this first commandment, you shall have no other God before me. Because if we don't have this orientation, the law feels like it's a weight around our necks, or it feels like God is trying to twist our arms to submit to him through threats and some sort of manipulation. And for those of you who are trying to understand Christianity, Oftentimes, you approach it with, well, you know what, I, let's, let's talk about all this stuff in here. Wait, so I have a problem with all this stuff of how God is telling people to set aside time for him. Why does he have to tell us how to relate to our parents? Why does he have to say something about who we can be physically intimate with? All of that just doesn't sit well with me. And may I suggest if that's kind of where you are and you have all of those questions, that part of what you need to do even before you get to those figure, uh, questions is figure out if Christianity is true at all. And maybe the first step is before we look at all of these laws, is to ask, has God really done something he claims to have done in the scriptures? Has he really given his son, Jesus Christ, to die, to be resurrected for us. Because if you begin to believe that, that's actually true. The lens through which you look at the law shifts. Because you're no longer driven by suspicion, but you see his words, his laws, as a way in which to experience the fullness of life as he intended. That it may go well with you. See? Because then when that happens... Even when it seems his commands go against your intuitions, even when it feels uncomfortable or even scary, because what God requires of us goes against what we think is best for us at the moment, you remember, hey, he's the one who rescued us. He's not our boss, but he is our savior. Okay? 
So let's, I just want us to frame uh, with that this first commandment, which we're going to look at, which is, you shall have no other gods before me. So how do you understand that? What is God trying to say? Why is this the first thing? And I think what we have to understand here is when he says this, he's telling us he has designed us to have him at the center of our lives. That we, as human beings, have been created to have him at the center of our lives. Because this commandment actually gets to the root of every other sin and problem in our lives. And this is what is essentially wrong with us. Because if God has actually created us, if he has designed us for a specific reason and purpose, that we weren't made arbitrarily, but for a very specific reason, he is saying it is to be in a right relationship with him and to live for him. See, I'll admit that sounds strange to us. You know, in our post-enlightenment world and modernity, it's taught us to think otherwise. That if you're going to really have find, to be able to find meaning, to find joy and happiness, we must be allowed to do whatever we want to. Because true freedom is actually having no restrictions whatsoever on our lives. And real joy and happiness and satisfaction comes when you get to do what your heart desires. You get to define yourself. And God is saying here, no. True freedom actually comes when you find yourself in relationship to God and worshiping him for being our creator and our redeemer. And when you don't have that, this is how the scriptures think about it. You begin to follow the gods of your desires, trying to find meaning in anything else. And you go against the instruction manual which God has given us embedded in our hearts for how we are made to work. And it just doesn't work. And this is what the first commandment is all about. No other gods. There is only room for one in your life because he has created us in this way. And when we go against this, we will be frustrated and unsatisfied. And before he talks about don't steal, don't lie, don't bear false witness or covet, he begins with, there is no other God before me. See? And this is where we must begin. I remember a friend of mine in college told me not long after her mom and dad immigrated to this country, they bought their first used car to get around. And they loved this thing. I mean, they've never owned a car before. They drove it around. They thought it was so cool. And here they are. They're like, we had nothing, and now we finally have a car. And after a few years and untold number of miles driven, the car just stopped working one day. And they didn't know why, so they got it to the mechanic. And the mechanic asked them, um, when was the last time you changed the oil? Literally, her parents drove their car for like, I think, over 50,000 miles. And imagine this, this is a car from the 70s. You had to get that thing uh, serviced pretty frequently. They never changed the oil because they did not know that was something you were supposed to do. Why? Because no one told them. 
They didn't know the thing was designed to be serviced. And they kept driving it and driving it, and obviously the engine burned out. And in many ways, perhaps that's what we do. We go against our design and not even know it. And God is saying here, the first thing I want you to understand is I actually created you for a purpose to have me at the center of your life so that things will go well with you. See, we are designed to be in a relationship with and worship the one and true living God. And every other God we serve is a false God. And God is saying, when you start worshiping them, you're going against me. And this is the essence of what the Bible calls sin. It's taking something or someone, and it may be something like money, your looks, your career, your children, your reputation, and putting it at the center of your life where only God belongs. And when that happens, and those things fail to deliver, you experience pain and brokenness because you are not designed to run on any of those things. Now, and maybe some of you are sitting here saying, you know, what are you talking about other gods? I come to church to worship God. Or others of you might be thinking, well, I'm trying to figure out if I can believe in God at all. But I think instinctively we know when the Bible is talking about worship in this way, we actually know more about it than we let on. You know, the writer David Foster Wallace gave a now very famous commencement address in 2005 at Kenyon College. And it is full of insight about ourselves and life. And for those of you who've been part of our Exploring Christianity class, it's one of the articles we actually read. But he said this to the students, um, which is now often quoted. But he says, because here's something else that's true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, There is no such thing as atheism. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly, and when when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid, and you will need even more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out and so on. He's saying nothing new. I mean, this has been the teaching of the Bible for the thousands of years. I mean, St. Augustine said, our hearts are always restless until we find our rest in God. You know, Martin Luther, the great hero of the Reformation, has said, what is God? And he answers the question by, a God is that to which we trust and believe with our whole heart that to which your heart clings and entrusts itself, I say, that is really your God. And we go against and disobey this first commandment when something or someone becomes more important to us than God when he's not centered in our lives. 
And when we do that, we eventually experience alienation and disappointment. And so the question that I think this verse actually brings out to us is this. Who are your gods? Who are our gods? Who or what do we actually worship? And maybe one of the ways you ask that question and tease that out is ask, where have you put all your hopes and your dreams? Because those are your gods. And the true God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, not only has God said, you have to keep me at the center, he also goes a little further than that in this first commandment. Because he said, your relationship with me must be exclusive. Okay, that's the other thing. Not only does he need to be at the center, because you can have him at the center and also worship lots of different things. So he's saying, the relationship I have with you must be exclusive. Exclusive. Okay? God is saying, I've given you life and rescued you from slavery, and now he's telling us, I am entering into a very exclusive relationship with you. I have made you mine, and now I want you to make me yours. So this is God having a, one of those define the relationship kind of talks with us, you know? Because he's saying there's only room for one. And he's saying, what is this? What is a relationship? Okay, you, you come around sometimes and you disappear. Sometimes you want me, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you want to hang out with me. When you need something, yeah, okay, you show up and then you're gone. And he's saying, what is this relationship? Let's talk about it. Let's have the DTR here. And he's saying, I want this to be exclusive. God is saying, be faithful to me, trust me, give yourself to me exclusively. Because having God at the center of our lives means we're called to be faithful to him because this is how you're going to thrive and it will also be pleasing to him. One thing this command is asking of us is it's forcing us to ask the question, which God, which gods, small g, do we have to say no to? Not only that you identify these gods, because that is part one. I think there's a lot of us that kind of can figure out, here are the things we really believe in and trust in, trust in. on top of God, especially for those who identify as a Christian, you're saying, I am a Christian, but I really struggle with worshiping just God here and trusting him. So if you can identify what these other gods are, he's now saying, now you actually have to say no to them. You have to actually take that next step to say, how do I actually exclude you from my life, these other gods, and make God my only God, because he keeps saying there's only room for one here. It's him. So let me ask you, who or what do you say, need to say no to? And this might be scary or even painful to answer because it feels like you're giving up a lot. You know, uh, one of the great joys as a pastor is I get to do a lot of weddings. 
And every wedding is special and beautiful. And in that moment, when there's that declaration made and vows are made, they're not just celebrating the love they have for each other at that moment. That's not the declaration. The promise that makes it so beautiful is that they are saying, I will be with you, be faithful to you, to belong exclusively to you. There is room only for one person in my life, and you are it. It's exclusive. You know, that's why you, you have all your friends come and celebrate, and tears are shed because we recognize there is something beautiful about that. And that means in that moment, you're saying yes to your spouse and no to everyone else. That is not your spouse. It's easy. There's got to be a no that goes with that yes. You see? And in a similar way, God is saying, that's what we need to have here. You know, we read Deuteronomy 6 earlier in the service during our call to confession where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. This kind of really summarizes, you shall have no other gods before me in a really positive way where it's saying, you got to love God so much, you can actually say no to everything else. See? And it's in these moments of seeing how beautiful and how wonderful God himself is, the God who rescued the people of Israel out of bondage with a mighty hand, with a miracle, defeated every Egyptian God. This is a God who's saying, I am your God. And God is saying, will you love me exclusively? Put me at the center. And this is a very different relationship than looking at God and saying, you know, you're really useful to me. A lot of us come to God, I think, hoping that he's going to be useful to us. Perhaps teach our children about morality, ethics, bring order into the world, solve our problems. But a Christian is someone who sees that God is much more than useful to us. That in the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, the gospel message, a Christian is someone who sees God as becoming beautiful. And he captivates our minds, our imagination. And we're drawn to him, and this allows you to say no to everything else. That's not God. And you cannot have this kind of exclusive relationship if you ignore him. And you can't do that if you only relate to him just so you can get something useful from him. And this is pretty much the same in any human relationship as well. But it needs to be committed. It needs to be deep. It needs to be full. And God keeps saying, when you come to me in that way, man, your life is just going to take off. It's going to be good. It feels like it's going to be something's going to be off here and you're giving up all of this like, I don't know, maybe the freedom to do what you want. But he's saying, in me, you're going to find life. And will you come and will you join me? You see? Now, some of you are thinking, yeah, that's, I've, I've tried that and this feels really, really hard. Because I try to keep not only the first but all of the Ten Commandments and I keep kind of tripping over myself, failure seems to come along my way quite often. You know, um, in many ways, I think God anticipated this. 
if you jump ahead to Exodus chapter 24, and you go to verses 3 and 7, there's this whole section there where the people say to God, we will obey. God, we're going to obey your words. We're going to keep your laws. And they also know they're going to fail. And you know what Moses does is they have a sacrifice. He takes the blood from the animals that were sacrificed to the Lord, and he sprinkles it on the altar. He sprinkles it on the people. And you wonder, what's this all about? See, because in the ancient Near East, that's the way you kind of ratified a contract that people were entering into. And that day, the people of God were entering into an agreement, a covenant with God. And this is how they did it. Blood would be shed. It's kind of a way of saying, hey, if I break this contract, may this happen to me. May I be destroyed. If I don't keep my end of the bargain, may I be cut up like these pieces of these animals. It was kind of a promise they were making. And when Moses sprinkles the blood of the sacrifices on the people to ratify this covenant, they're all saying, let this be done to me if I don't keep the law. And here's the problem. They don't. That's why there's this whole system of sacrifices. There are days of atonement. God set up a system knowing that they couldn't do this fully. It didn't mean his laws didn't matter. But they recognized they couldn't keep the law. They kept looking at it like a mirror and they realized, I can't do everything God has required of me. This is one of the functions of the law. It's actually to teach us we actually need more than the law because we can't save ourselves. But many centuries later, in a room with 12 Jewish disciples who were saturated with the story of the Exodus, what did Jesus do? He picked up the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This bread represents my body, which is going to be broken for you. And Jesus says, I will keep the covenant, which you were not able to keep. I will do what you could not do. When you were not able to be faithful and to keep God exclusive in your life, Recognize that I am the one who was able to do this and I did it on your behalf. And knowing this, you see, this is how we begin to understand our relationship to the law. Like we understand we can't keep it fully, but it doesn't mean we don't try and strive because when you begin to see God actually kept the law through his son, Jesus Christ, then you go back to this idea once again of, God has loved me. He has rescued me. Why would I not trust him? Because when you see yourselves loved by God in this way, you begin to be able to give yourself to him exclusively and say, I will have no other gods before him. I can trust him. He is willing to give up the most precious thing in order that I would have life, that all may go well with me. You see? And this is where, you know, the quote we have in the front of the bulletin from Tim Keller is so helpful. He says, the living God who revealed himself both at Mount Sinai and on the cross is the only Lord who, if you find him, can truly fulfill you. And if you fail him, can truly forgive you. Is that the God you worship? 
the one who can truly fulfill you and forgive you. I don't think any of the gods that we worship have the ability to do that. But this is the God of the scriptures. And God is saying, if you know this about me, why won't you follow me? Why won't you come after me? It all begins in this place where he's saying, trust me. I've got you. I've given myself in this way. So please, trust and believe me. Let me finish with this. Um, There's a story that's been told from the Civil War days before America's slaves were freed. It's about a northerner who went to a slave auction and purchased a young slave girl. And as they walked away from the auction, the man turned to the girl and told her, you're free. You're free. And she's just amazed. And she says, you mean I'm free to do whatever I want? Yes, he said. And to say whatever I want to say? Yes, you can say anything. And to be whatever I want to be? Yes. And even go wherever I want to go? Yes. You're free to go wherever you'd like. I mean, the woman's astonished. She looked at him and said, Then I will go with you. Why? Because here is someone who is for me. Why won't you go with that person? See, this is a place of safety. This is a place where I'm going to flourish. God is saying, I brought you freedom. I brought you life through my son. Have no other gods before me because I am the Lord, your God. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you that we can call you our Heavenly Father. You're not a God who is far away, but rather you come near to us in your Son. And it's because of all that you've given us and have done for us that we come giving you thanks and praise. We ask that this morning you would shine a light on all that your Son has accomplished so we can see him clearly to see the beauty of all that he's done so that we can trust you and follow you and give ourselves to you. Transform us in this way, Lord. And we ask these things in your son's name. Amen.